It was very unusual. It was very unusual. And when Colonel Barr explained to us that, you know, I want you to think about, I want you to think about this before you sign these papers, um, because this is serious stuff and it's taken seriously. And when he was asked about how many teams had been left over the fence, and uh, he didn't give a definitive answer. He just said, too many. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our guest today is Roger Lockshear, former helicopter crew chief of the Black Angel Flight Team of the 101st Aviation Battalion, 101st Airborne Division in 1968 during the deadliest year of the Vietnam War. He's going to relate some of the amazing stories from his excellent book, We Saved Sog Souls, 101st Airborne Missions in Vietnam and Laos during the Vietnam War, which brings to life some of the most heroic examples of aerial combat you've ever heard. He and his pilots and fellow gunners flew UEUH-1C gunships in support of some of the most dangerous missions of the Vietnam War, many of them to provide air cover for the brave Green Berets in the Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observation Group, known as SOG. Flights that took them deep into Laos and North Vietnam, sometimes being shot at by hundreds of North Vietnamese soldiers on the ground and facing Russian MiG-17s and weaponized Hind Mi-8 helicopters. It's my great honor to welcome Roger Lockshear as today's Hero Behind the Headlines. Heroes Behind Headlines with Ralph Pizzullo. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and then how you got into 101st Airborne? I grew up in a uh, working class family. Uh, my father worked uh, two jobs most of the time. And uh, I went as a, uh, I went to a trade school mm-hmm. for high school. And um during my time in trade school is when uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. When that happened, a chord was struck within me, and I kept going back to and thinking about his 1961 um, inauguration address when he made that famous statement of ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Mm-hmm. And that was working on me. I was uh, I was a junior in high school at the time, and I didn't know. I you know where do what do I do? I had gotten an interest in special forces, um, which Kennedy, as we know, which Kennedy brought to the forefront. Right. So I got out of high school and started a job as a an apprentice toolmaker, actually an apprentice injection mold maker. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was in nineteen in the fall of nineteen sixty four. Um, the Vietnam War started cranking up. I was under a deferment mm-hmm. because of my apprenticeship, and I had some friends 
that I had gone to school with that were also under deferments or supposedly under deferments that started getting drafted. Mm -hmm. So by late 1965, I started seriously thinking about the military. And I thought that if I'm going to go into the military, I want to go on my terms. I don't want to be drafted. Um, I didn't like the, I didn't like what it at that time represented, you know, which was unfair, but yeah, I didn't want to be drafted. So I went to, early in 1966, I went and spoke to the local recruiter and told him that I wanted to go special forces. Mm-hmm. And he said, sure, you know, I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll fix you right up. <laughs> and, and and he, he he went on to tell me that, you know, first you have to become airborne qualified to even test for qualification. And I said, sure, that's fine. I, I've always been fascinated with that. Mm-hmm. Um, what he didn't tell me was I had to go to AIT after basic. So I went through basic training, which is a whole other story in its own. Yeah. I talk about in the new book. Um through basic training um, at graduation, I'm handed my papers, and here I am. I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to jump school. Yeah, and and it and it shows that I'm going to Fort Rucker, Alabama, for aircraft, airframe, power plant training. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I got I got our, our assistant uh, drill instructor, and I said, you know, what the hell is this? This can't be right. And yeah. he said, why? I said, well, I'm, I thought I was going to jump school. He said, no, 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 no. You, it doesn't work that way. So, you know, okay. <laughs> didn't have much choice. Yeah. So, you know, went to Fort Rucker, Alabama. Mm-hmm. Went through the first training course, which was a four-week course. Now, this is starting the 1st of July. I mean, yeah. I'm in southeast <laughs> Alabama in, in the hardest <laughs> summer. And let me tell you. It was it was nasty those first four weeks. Uh, the barracks that I was in were the old wooden barracks you could see through the sidewalls. Oh no my God. I mean it yeah, was yeah. Nasty, nasty. <laughs> but anyway, went through the first course, did very well. Mm-hmm. Found it interesting. So what they did was they took the top few of the class and moved you on to the next advanced class, and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a number of a total of four classes, 16 weeks, uh, that maxed out. And each class I finished, I did very well. I was near the top of the class or at the top. So they moved me on. Mm-hmm. Finally, um, in November, um, I got my orders to uh, to go to jump school. Um, I was able to go home uh, for a few days and then report to Fort Benning. Went through jump school, loved it. Absolutely mm-hmm. loved it. Had you ever done any anything nope, like that before? I had not done jumping before, <laughs> but I, I mean, I was I was in my element. I mean, yeah. I really, really did like it. Mm-hmm. The harassment and whatnot at at Fort Benning uh, was fun, you know. <laughs> when you knew what the game was, right, right, you right. know. And I, I had um, uh, my my time in basic training was really bizarre, um, and and. Just to not to really get into things, but our drill instructor after us, not immediately after our group, but he ended up in Leavenworth Prison. Oh my God! Abuse uh, and her, her physical abuse, uh, which I experienced, and everybody you know that crossed yeah. him experienced. 
So he, he really crossed the line. For a long, he got put away for a long time. Oh, wow. Um, so I was already conditioned to take some some abuse. <laughs> but the abuse at, at Fort Benning uh, was not physical. Not, yeah. not in the sense of it, it, physically conditioning, yes. Yeah, yeah. But 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 not in an abusive way. It, it, right, I mean, right. I knew what the game was. I knew what the verbal harassment right. game was. Um, and everybody got their turn in the barrel. It was just part of it. Yeah. Anyway, um, during the last couple of days or so of training before graduation, I met with the special forces recruiter. He surprised me by advising me not to go directly to qualification. Um, and his uh, explanation of that was that uh, he saw my files, saw my records, my orders. I was going to the 101st Airborne, mm -hmm. the Aviation Battalion, as a crew chief, a helicopter crew chief. Um, he said, it's an outstanding unit. Mm -hmm. He said, I highly recommend you get some experience under your belt, even if it's only a few months. Yeah. And then if you still want to go SF, then apply. Yeah. And the reason for that was... Um, he said, the infantry is scooping up every live body that they can right now with the buildup in Vietnam. Yeah. If you have any issues during qualification training, he said, the likelihood, regardless of your MOS, the likelihood of you getting sent to an infantry line outfit were very high, in his opinion. Yeah. Um, he said, but if you get a little bit of experience under your belt and your MOS, should something happen... You would just get sent back to your unit. Yeah, yeah. Your regular unit. So it made it made sense to me. It, it's not what I wanted to do. Yeah. But I, I said, well, okay, that is that, that is logical. I mean, that, that does make sense. So I went to the hundred first. I I loved it at the hundred first. Mm -hmm. This was um, it was a proud unit. The hundred and first Airborne Division, known as the Screaming Eagles is one of the most deployed and recognized divisions in the U.S. Army, with a combat record that spans from the paratroopers of World War II to the security force assistant teams recently deployed in Afghanistan. Established in 1918, the 101st Division was first constituted as an airborne unit in 1942. During World War II, it gained renown for its role in Operation Overlord, the D-Day landings, and airborne landings on June 6, 1944 in Normandy, France, Operation Market Garden, the liberation of the Netherlands, and its actions during the Battle of the Bulge around the city of Bastogne, Netherlands. On June 29, 1965, the first 4,000 paratroopers in the 101st Airborne Division arrived in Vietnam, landing at Kamran Bay. In the seven years that all or part of the division served in Vietnam, it participated in 12 separate campaigns, and its members received 17 medals of honor. Perhaps the most famous 101st Airborne alumni is guitarist Jimi Hendrix, who served with the 101st for about a year before he was honorably discharged from the Army in 1962. Very high-end, very professional. Um, they gave me the opportunity to pursue any 
course that came available, any classes, anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I went, to, you know, to we received when I got there. We didn't have Huey helicopters. We just had the little Bell thirteens uh, and uh, Hughes uh, and the Hiller twenty threes, the little mm-hmm. little birds. But early in the spring, we received our Hueys. So then I went to school for for those for for a month. I uh, went to school for weapons training um, on on the weapons systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to school for uh, M60 training and then qualification. Um, then went to chemical warfare school. Wow. I mean, everything that came up, I was like, yeah. I mean, I, I was yeah. really. Had you ever imagined that you would be uh, part of the helicopter crew? No. No, no, that was the furthest from my mind. My yeah. focus was always SF. Yeah. And that was it. That was all I was concerned with. Right. Um, I had an opportunity while I was at Fort Rucker to go to flight school. Mm-hmm. They took a, a, a few of us, um, told us we were going to do some testing, um, some written testing. Didn't say what it was for. And, you know, so um, I took the test. And afterwards, they said, well, you qualified. The testing was for qualification to go to flight school. And um, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going SF. That was my yeah yeah. You know. So um, at, at Fort Campbell, no, I had never thought about the, the helicopters, but once I got into it, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I I thoroughly enjoyed and thrived on the, the UEs and the weapons mm-hmm. and uh, the systems and all. So come uh, December of 1967, the unit deployed to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was selected along with another crew chief to go as the advance party for our unit, for our company. Um, we loaded up two uh, helicopters uh, with all the weapon systems and one Jeep into a C-133. Wow. Most people don't know what a C-133 is, yeah. but it's like a C-130 on steroids. <laughs> yeah, it's a big by today's standards, I mean, the C5 and 17, no doubt, are bigger. Right. Uh, but this was this was like that. <laughs> I mean, huge, huge. So, uh, and we took five to six days to get there. Wow. Hop, skipping along the way. Wow. Um, when we got there, um, and, and I, I write about it in the book, you know, one of my first um, experiences in Vietnam was when they, the tail uh, ramp dropped on that big C-133 and the, the hot air rushed in. And as my eyes focused um, there, I was staring at rows of uh, coffins. Yeah. And uh, that was a little bit of a hit in the chest. <laughs> I bet. You know, it was like, okay. Yeah, this is know, real. This is a real deal. Yeah. This is real. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no more war games. Yeah. No more fun time this is serious stuff yeah um like i said in in the book i, I didn't know whether they were full yeah and going to be loaded on the plane that i just came in on or if they were empty yeah you know i don't know it really didn't matter it that that, that really struck home yeah but anyway uh went on to our our unit up in benoit which was uh which was a nice outpost i was i was expecting much much worse mm-hmm. uh conditions and um, there were Quonset—not Quonset huts, but they were—they um, were permanent buildings mm-hmm. 
with uh, regular roofs and, and whatnot. And uh, they, they held, uh, I don't know, I'm guessing 20, 25, 30 guys, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe more like 20 or 25. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, yeah, with a regular floor and, Wow! So it was, it was it was nice. It was good living quarters for for where it was, you know. Yeah. So and it's that's where our experience started. Let's move a, a month forward. Yeah. And you're still in Benoit. You're starting to run missions. Yeah. And the Tet Offensive happens. The days and couple weeks leading up to the the Tet Offensive in January 1968 were really um, getting bizarre. Yeah. Uh, we we were working out of an area called Sambay, which is uh, north and west of uh, Benoit, about 50 miles or so, mm-hmm. and uh, supporting all the different ground troops and NSF uh, units in that area. Mm-hmm. We would go there for um, usually two or three days at a time. Sometimes it would last longer, four or five, six days even. Yeah. What I was noticing, and we were noticing, was that we were the closer we got into Jan- the further we got into January, the shorter our encounters with the enemy were becoming. Yeah, um, it was it was like uh, almost like they were probing. Yeah, or if they were discovered, um, like they 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 broke they would break contact quickly, really quick. Like they didn't want to they didn't want to stand and fight. Yeah, which was not so unusual, but it was. It was um, even more so than what was typical. But it was something that you noticed. Yeah, oh yeah, it was it was palpable. Yeah. Then, as we got really close, we had been we had been on station for an extended period of time. We were there four or five days, um, thoroughly exhausted because we're running twenty four seven. Yeah. And uh, well, not twenty four seven, but yeah. <laughs> five or six. Yeah. Um, and constantly on call. So you're up and down, up and down. You're in contact. You're, you know, fighting. And then, but anyway, um, we were exhausted. Uh, we we looked like the red powdered soil. We were just filthy, yeah. tired. And we finally got relieved late in the afternoon on the eve of Tet. Now, we were hearing, there were starting celebrations were going on. In, in the communities around uh, around where we were, uh, firecrackers and, you know, but it, it didn't feel right. Yeah. I mean, it really didn't feel right. I mean, just just prior to that, a couple of days prior to that, we were out on what was called a people sniffer mission mm-hmm. uh, where we have a, a, uh, a sensing device and a slick that picks up uh, different affluents like uric acids and stuff like that. Yeah. And Typically, when we would go out, you'd hit a hot spot, and you'd go for a while. Maybe you'd hit another hot spot, and it'd be marked on a map, a checkpoint on a map. Mm-hmm. And they would go back in at a, at a later point with a, with a ground unit, usually, and see what's going on there. Sometimes it was nothing. It, would, it could be false positive. Sometimes it were uh, groups of monkeys, you know, because you could pick. Yeah, yeah. This day, when we went out, we went out. And the, the moment that the system was turned on, we were going to do a grid pattern, you know? Yeah. And we would fly alongside the um, the slick mm-hmm. We at low level. We'd fly alongside of it. Mm-hmm. And our, our um, sister gunship, 
our wingship would be up at a high elevation watching and guiding also. He would be keeping the slick on a pattern. The moment he, that they announced systems going on, he responded back, hotspot, hotspot, yeah, yeah. hotspot. Wow. I mean, it was just, just nonstop. Yeah. And I mean, I had never experienced anything like this. So we, everybody, we just determined this, that the system was messed up. Yeah. There's something wrong. It's shorting out or something. Yeah. 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 So we, we went back. Um, the crew said they had, they had another system back at some bay that would swap it out. So we flew back, swapped out the system while, while they were swapping it out. Some technicians were checking it, checking the system. And they said, they, they can't see anything wrong, but it must be something. Yeah. Yeah. We get back out there. He says, uh, going hot and instantly it was the same thing. Wow. We ran, we ran that grid pattern. And even now, as I'm talking, my hair is starting to stand up Yeah, because it was the most bizarre yeah. feeling. Yeah. Uh, but we weren't drawing any fire, which was really weird. Yeah, sure. So it was, we just covered this whole area that was on the north side of Sound Bay, north and west of Sound Bay, uh-huh. which is, we're only a few miles from the Cambodian border. Yeah. This whole region was just lit up. And the, the map, when we got back, the map was just covered. Wow. That was bizarre. So they were staging. They were, they were just they were staging. staging. Yeah. I mean, we didn't know what the hell to make of it. Yeah. It, it's like, well, it's just working. Right. But, how, you know, how can it be? This, you know, something's not right. Yeah. Well, on, on the uh, eve of Tet, we uh, finally, late in the afternoon, we finally got our um, our replacements came in, and we told them what was what was going on. Yeah, we headed back to Benoit that night when the Tet Offensive broke out. Two replacement crews um, they got mortared. We were getting mortared regularly. Yeah, but, but, but what our policy was was when it got dark we would move to helicopters mm-hmm. because i mean you know yeah. i mean there's people walking through this area it was a wide open area hmm. it, which was strange yeah. you know yeah but it was totally insecure yeah it was not a secure area right anyway they got they got mortared that night um and uh of the eight crew members at least four of them were wounded and um, one of them very seriously wounded. He survived. Yeah, uh, and all all may have been because I can't remember that you know the other crew coming back. Both helicopters were damaged, uh, one severely. And apparently, they didn't move their their helicopters. Yeah, that was saying the that they, they broke policy. Seemed like. Yeah, I mean, I don't know for sure, and I've talked to people since. Yeah, and nobody knows for sure, but that that's that's the guess. Yeah. But anyway, um, back in, in base camp at Benoit during the night when all hell broke loose um, and we charged down to our flight line where we had our M60s and, and we loaded up those M60s. And now we had a huge amount of firepower. Yeah. Uh, we were facing facing uh, Benoit City yeah. and Benoit Airfield, Air Force Base. But in between, it was a long, long distance of uh, flatland and grassy, high grass and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And the NBA had gotten 
into Benoit City. They had breached the airport, wow. um, the airfield, air and they they had crossed into our uh, sector, mm-hmm. and we ended up having some um, some gunfights with them during the course of the night. But um, it was it was a strange strange time. Yeah, it, during during the morning hours things were quieting down the long bin supply depot which was a few miles east of uh, where we were got hit hard yeah and um apparently their ammo depot got hit yeah well we were we were underground on the flight line still still manning our our guns and all of a sudden this explosion went off and this place rocked. Now it's a few miles away. Yeah, yeah. And we see this mushroom. <laughs> oh, wow! Wow! wow. And, and it's like, oh, jeez. Yeah. It, it looked. I mean, it looked like a nuclear device went off. Yeah. I and mean, that's what it looked like. Wow! Wow. Fortunately, it wasn't. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. was, it was ammo. Just ammo. The ammo dump yeah. going up. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, we didn't know if we we're gonna. You know, get showered with radioactive dust. Yeah. I mean, we didn't know until later. Roger, how long was it before you realized that this was a general offensive and a lot of places were being attacked, or was it all just very local? I know we found out right away that Sambe got hit really hard. Mm-hmm. New Saigon had gotten hit. I mean, we, I think we, that morning, yeah, we knew, yeah, uh, by daylight as communications were. We're starting to um, filter down, yeah, uh, down to us, yeah, and uh, and I mean we were our company was right next to uh, division headquarters, mm-hmm. so maybe that's why we find out so quickly. But um, but we knew we knew um, sometime that morning, yeah, not during the night so much. Um, I don't recall, but. Certainly during during the morning hours, yeah. we knew that this is a massive thing. Since our our other team had gotten uh, attacked up in Sambe and and what, so now it was just a fight for survival. It was so that the base isn't overrun. Yeah, I mean, it was um, the the people up at Sambe, the ground units and the artillery units that were there did a good job. Yeah. I mean, they uh, they were able to keep um, from getting totally overrun. The Sambe City, which it was called, it was we would consider it more like a village mm-hmm. in our in the states. But um, Sambe City did get overrun, but the military outposts were out around that mm-hmm. that city. And mostly, mostly to the the south and east of Sambe, south and east and west to the north. Um, I, I I think the only camps there were SF camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, Udap was was one, but there was a lot of infantry uh, units and cavalry units up around Sambe. So, um, and 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 what people didn't realize back in the states because it was publicized in a totally different light that the communist losses were massive. Yeah. They were massive. Because these were like suicide attacks, basically. Yeah. Well, certainly the the ones we encountered were mm-hmm. because 
um, the ones that broke through the airfield and yeah. down near us. Uh, they certainly were. I mean, it was no, it wasn't like there were thousands of them coming across. It was small groups of sappers and stuff. Yeah. And you're just mowing them down with yeah. M60s. Yeah. Yeah. Well, which are we big guns. Yeah. We, we couldn't see, actually see them. Yeah. Like during the night. I mean, there were flares going off all, all night long. Yeah. We couldn't see them so much, but as soon as they would open fire, we could see the muzzle flashes. Yeah. And, and we had our M6Cs were strewn out maybe a hundred yards the, the length of the flight line. Yeah. And with two on each, you know, so there's uh there's eight there's eight M60s coming in, not as a crossfire, but from different angles yeah. on this, these positions. So oh yeah, there, there was there was no way that they were gonna walk out of there. Yeah. Yeah. Or get much further. Yeah. Um, so and how long was it before you were able to get airborne? So you so you're you're pretty much stuck on the ground there. Well, the thing of it is, we weren't stuck on the ground. Okay. Um, and that was a question that that I wondered about at the time. Why why we didn't get airborne right away? Yeah. There were other gunships, helicopter gunships, work in the area from different units. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's why. Yeah. I, I don't know. I really don't know why we weren't we weren't called. But it wasn't a matter that we couldn't yeah. get off the ground. Oh, it was okay. a matter that, you know, we weren't cleared to, to get off. We were put in place. And also maybe because of the proximity of headquarters. Mm -hmm. Well, they wanted you to protect. Perhaps. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I could only, only surmise that that might have played into it. Because, like I said, we had a lot of firepower. Yeah, yeah. Not counting the rest of our unit right. that were you know, motor pool and maintenance and support, but they still all had M60s. Yeah, yeah. We're able to um, protect down there. So yeah. um, maybe, I, I don't know. I don't know. The first wave of the North Vietnamese Army and VC attacks that constituted the Tet Offensive began shortly after midnight on the 30th of January, 1968, when five provincial capitals in central South Vietnam were hit, including Da Nang, Nha Trang, and Pleiku. Over the next two days, NVA and VC forces hit Way, Saigon, and numerous U.S. bases, including Benoit, where Roger was stationed. In total, they mortared or rocketed every major Allied airfield and attacked 64 district capitals and scores of smaller towns. During all these operations, the communist attacks followed a similar pattern. Mortar or rocket attacks, closely followed by mass ground assaults conducted by battalion strength elements of VC, sometimes supported by NVA regulars. A total of approximately 84,000 NVA and VC troops participated in the attacks while thousands of others stood by to act as reinforcements or as blocking forces. Estimates of NVA and VC killed run as high as 45,000. After you end up going up to Camp Eagle and Phu Bai, yes. what was that like and what did you encounter there? When Tet wound down, mm -hmm. right near the winding down of Tet, I got shot down. And the NVA were still working the area around Sambay. 
And we got shot down during that time. The a team that was down near Benoit, gun team, heard over the radio waves that, you know, we took a May Day and whatnot. So they diverted from what they were doing and they flew up um, to assist. And at that time, not only had we got shot down, but there was a C-130 that had gotten uh, shot. It was all, it was burning mm. the main runway. Uh, we were down. Our windship was okay, but it certainly couldn't fly by itself. I mean, that's just too dangerous. Mm-hmm. And um, so the other team arrived, picked up where we left off, and one of them got shot down. Oh, God. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was heavy, heavy fighting going on. Yeah, on the just south uh, south of where we were. Yeah, a uh, couple of villages, Sambe villages, and uh, we actually got shot down over a village that was supposed to have been a friendly village. That we were told to be very careful. Yeah, not fire into the friendly village. Well, they they tore us up. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, um, so our division moved. Move north. So when you're looking at, from your perspective, when you're looking at Tet, it wasn't only a North Vietnamese operation. It was also sort of an uprising among Viet Cong units in these so-called friendly towns. Sure. Although this was where we got shot down, uh, and and I should have explained that. Um, They weren't from the the regulars like Viet Cong. These were suited up oh. uh nba okay. they were in full uniform but they were they had taken over that what used to be okay i i'm, I'm not so sure how friendly that village was because we used to get mortared from that, <laughs> that village. Yeah. we would get mortared at night from that village so yeah but it was nonetheless considered friendly uh, mm-hmm. but these were all north vietnamese oh, uh, wow. soldiers we we flushed them yeah and and they paid a heavy toll but they took us down in the process and then took down another gunship. Fortunately, nobody um, got hit. Nobody got shot. Yeah. But, um, and, and of course, the, the Tet Offensive wasn't a one or two or three day event. Yeah. It lasted about six weeks. Yeah. Um, until it really, you know, died down. So, anyway, um, our division, our company and division moved north mm-hmm. to Camp Eagle, which sat halfway between. Way Fubai, uh, Way City, and Fubai. Mm-hmm. It's uh, halfway in between the two. Mm-hmm. My gunship was still under repairs, so we we um, headed north about a week or so after uh, the main unit did. And when we we got up there, it was uh, this is a different different ball game <laughs> altogether. The terrain was different. Yeah. Um, our our action involvement with uh, the special forces was very different yeah uh, we we had run a few missions with the sf when we were down south running into cambodia um just not far in but just you know a little ways in in and out uh, they were usually hot they usually those missions got hot yeah. and on the extractions especially yeah and and that's where i, I guess we started our relationship mm-hmm and which carried north. Yeah. It carried north. Word carried north. And and also people move in and out too. And but anyway, by the time we, we got up north, um, we were we were really welcomed in. We had a, we spent the night on on the trip, we spent the night in the Trang, 
at Fifth Special Forces Group headquarters, where we were treated like we were treated like royalty, and mm-hmm. I didn't fully grasp, you know, at the time, uh, the significance. You know, yeah, we we had a good night there. They were very welcoming. They they were happy to see you guys. They were. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were welcomed. We were welcomed in like long lost brothers. You know. Yeah. So, and you probably didn't realize the significance of that at first. Not, not, not really. I mean, yeah, we were helping a lot of people. Who we were the hired guns, you know. Yeah. Uh, when somebody needed help, we would we'd go help them out. Yeah. And and with the the special forces down, uh, in down in the southern area, we ran we ran quite a few missions. Some and most were in country. Yeah. With a team. Yeah. Um, and we ran some that went over the border in Cambodia. Yeah. I didn't know the difference at the time. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're, we're helping these guys out. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, we, we got up to Eagle and this is a different story altogether. We, we, the mountains, there are real mountains. Yeah. Um, the landscape is flat in a lot of areas. It's, it's hilly and the environment, the environment was just very different. And we very quickly hooked up with FOB1, which is based on Fubai. Yeah. We started with them, and um, that's where we ended up signing non-disclosures. Yeah, because your briefing up there is quite unusual. It was very unusual. <laughs> it was it was very unusual. And, um, and, and when um, then Colonel Barr explained to us that, you know, I want you to think about I want you to think about this before you sign these papers, yeah. um, because this is serious stuff, yeah. and it's taken seriously. And when he was asked about how many teams had been left over the fence, and uh, he didn't give a definitive answer, he just said too many. Yeah. You know. Wow. It was somewhat voluntary. Like you, you had a choice whether whether to, whether to take on these missions or not. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And every every mission was voluntary. Yeah, not just the whole concept. You could just quit whenever you said, "I've had enough." He, yeah. he made it. He made it very clear. Yeah, uh, in signing the documents, that was a non-disclosure, not to yeah. talk about missions and stuff. However, the missions are on a volunteer basis. Every time, wow! And uh, he made it very clear that, that if at any time you don't you you want out, you don't want to do this anymore. There is no questions asked. Wow! There, there, you're respected. Yeah. For being a part of us, and there's there, there is no shame. Yeah. No repercussions or anything. No repercussions whatsoever. Which in the military is oh yeah really unusual. It's very different. Yeah. Yeah. So. But you know, um, at, at this point in the game, we we were very confident in what we were doing. Yeah, uh, we knew we were ver- we were very good. Yeah, at what we did. We should talk a minute about the Huey and your crew. As a crew, um, as a crew chief, I had a partner who was uh, my door gunner, mm-hmm. who I selected. And at this point in time, it was a fellow by the name of Steve Harper. Steve was a uh, experienced combat vet. He came from First Brigade uh, of the 101st Airborne. He already served a year in Vietnam mm-hmm. on the line. He was a uh, M60 infantry machine gunner. Hmm. I mean, he was a weapons guy. He knew the weapons. 
he was a, he was a hardcore guy. He was, you know, in some in some ways, you're what you might say your typical paratrooper. He was tough. He was professional. Yeah, and he was fearless. Yeah, and yet he was a quiet sort. Mm-hmm. And and he and I hit it off right in the very beginning. I mean, we just hit it off. Mm-hmm. And I, I put my life in his hands, and he did the same because you know, in a, when you're in a gunship, um, you've got four people in there. Uh, two of them are flying the aircraft and whatnot, and toward operating the door guns. And if anybody slips, yeah, you could all, yeah, in a blink of an eye you could all be lost. Yeah. So um, it's, it was extremely important yeah. that we work as a team. Yeah. And as such, we we kept the pilot. The pilot stayed with us, a guy by the name of Jim Whitman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he and I started flying, and Steve started flying together when we were down in Benoit. He was an outstanding pilot, outstanding skills. Mm-hmm. The po- co-pilot would switch on and off. Yeah. They would switch on and off, but, you know, that was okay. Yeah. As as a team, we we functioned perfectly. I knew that when we were on a gun run, uh, if I was out on the skids, which most people didn't do, yeah. But I felt it was a better place to be because I can get at my target mm-hmm. better mm-hmm. and and see my target better. But the problem with that is if the pilot does something unexpected, like he jerks on on the cyclic or something and changes direction quickly i mean i could get thrown in front of the miniguns yeah or in front of the rocket pods yeah in doing that um going out in the skids i mean it, you you're you're placing your life in the pilot's hands you know yeah 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 and i i never had any fear of that because as jim whitman was was rock solid rock solid so you're basically hanging outside the helicopter well so I mean, we have the monkey strap, yeah. you know, the extended seat belt. Right, but you're out. But you're out. out yeah, you're outside. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're outside. Yeah. You're outside the aircraft. Yeah. So you're very exposed. Very exposed. Yeah. Yeah. And and the way I saw it was that inside that helicopter, <laughs> I mean, it's only a false sense of security. <laughs> yeah, right, because it's not like an armored vehicle. No, yeah. no, no, it's not like sitting inside an armored vehicle as opposed to sitting on the top. Right. No, I mean, the way I saw it was I, I could be, I, I, I could see myself as being safer, being more aggressive. Mm-hmm. The more aggressive okay. that we could be, the safer we could be. Okay. Um, we could get the, the enemy to back down, to flinch. Yeah. Then, you know, we had the edge, regardless of what the numbers were. Yeah. And that's how we operated. As American involvement in Vietnam escalated, so did the use of Huey helicopters. Armed Hueys became known as hogs, while gun-toting helicopters were dubbed Cobras. Troop transport versions were nicknamed Slicks, a reference to their slick sides that held no weapon stations. The initial A model Huey shortcoming soon gave way to the UH-1B with a longer cabin and more powerful engine. Continued development led to the C and D variants. The Charlie model that Roger was the crew chief of was outfitted with external weaponry and operated as a gunship. It incorporated a new Bell 540 rotor system and 27-inch cord blades. 
the increased power led Bell's engineers to design a new tail boom for the C, which incorporated a wider cord fin on a longer boom and larger synchronized elevators. The C also introduced a dual hydraulic control system for redundancy in battle and an improved inlet filter system for dusty conditions found in Southeast Asia. Fuel capacity was increased to 242 gallons and gross weight to 9,500 pounds. I mean, you were basically flying combat support to teams that were inserting and extracting from, mm-hmm. from Laos. And- yeah, with, with uh, the special forces when we were running with them. Yeah, that was yeah. true. That were over and they were in Laos, yeah. primarily Laos. We we ran some up in the DMZ, and we also ran a few missions in North Vietnam, mm-hmm. which were hairy to say I the bet. least. It brought on a whole new element. You know, yeah, that's where they had they had you know Russian, yeah. um, massive Russian gun helicopters, um, where they had the MiG seven or nineteens and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and Sam's and, and stuff like that. So that brought on a whole new element yeah, up there. Yeah, that's pretty scary. Yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? It, 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 I don't know. Uh, we were young and overconfident. And, um, and you, and you certainly feel a sense of, um, being not immortal, but yeah, invincible in, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I guess that that's probably part of what makes it work. Yeah, of course it does. Yeah. Because you can't hesitate. Yeah, you can't think about you, it. You can't hesitate at all. Yeah. In, in a gunship, if you do, um, you're gonna you'll be dead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The more aggressive, and and that's how we operated. Yeah. The more aggressive, uh, the better. Yeah. You're running missions now with these SOG teams, which are eight to ten man teams. Other pilots, other helicopters are inserting them into these hotspot areas where they're doing recon mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And you're running support, right? Mm-hmm. And then you're sent up to Quezon, which is, you know, notorious place that had already been a Marine base for a while, mm-hmm. heavily hit, surrounded by the enemy most of the time. And what was that like? The yeah, Quezon was, was interesting. Um, this so-called siege of Quezon was over. Yeah. But that was more of a technical the technical <laughs> term than, than anything because Quezon was still getting bombarded uh, with artillery from Korok Mountain and mortared and rockets into Quezon, into Quezon. continuous. It was always under uh, some kind of fire. Quezon was interesting. Our, our, um, our first experience with Quezon, um, we didn't, I didn't even know prior to going there, that there were special forces there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I knew it was a Marine yeah, base, but yeah. I didn't know there was anybody operating out of there as a launch site. Yeah. But th- that's the way it was supposed to be. You weren't supposed to know. Nobody was supposed to know. Right. But anyway, um, my first experience at Quezon is uh, we came in, we landed. It was quiet. Yeah. You know, nothing was going on. And as we're shutting down, there's two Jeeps um, I can see coming across the airfield and somebody in there is yelling, and they're they're waving, and they're yelling. I don't know what the hell they're saying. <laughs> and uh, so I, I tie down the, the rotor. We're, we get out, 
and he's he's going get in, get in, get in. Yeah, the chiefs. But what the what's going on? I mean, it was quiet. Yeah, and he's God damn it, get in. Let's <laughs> go, let's go, let's go. Well, I did find out, you know, when we got back that I mean, they're under constant barrage wow. and they're they're constantly trying to hit the airfield and anybody moving around out there. Yeah, Kason uh, was underground it was trench city mm -hmm. um it was it, it was like a world war one uh in, installation it's just crazy yeah i mean it was it was crazy yeah yeah um, it was it was dirty everything was dirty um dusty and reddish that reddish dirt that reddish powder it re reminded me of what it was like back at Song Bay, yeah, very similar <laughs> in that regard, and it was loaded with rats. Yeah, yeah, loaded, loaded with rats. Wow, um, the rats were a problem for the for the Americans. It, it was not a problem at all for the uh, indigenous <laughs> uh, that were there. I mean, it, they they were keeping them and raising them as a food source, mm -hmm. so they had endless supply <laughs> of food, and you know. Like I don't know who was somebody said somebody mentioned to me, hey, food is food, protein's protein. Right, you know, right. That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Kason, yeah, that Kason was interesting. It was interesting. And can you describe one of the missions you ran when you would find these gun positions that that were in caves or they were underground, and you'd have to mm. you know try to take them out? Yeah, Korok Mountain was the place that uh, kept Kason under siege. Mm -hmm. there, were, there were caves in Korok Mountain, and they were high up in the mountain. And um, they had 155-millimeter cannons um, that they had on tracks. Mm. It would roll to the, the cave entrances and start pounding away and when they were finished, it would roll them back in. And no matter what kind of airstrikes or B-52s, I mean, you couldn't dislodge them because they were, they were deep in and they were, they were protected. Wow. It, it had to give them some kind of shocks to their body getting bombed all the time. Yeah, yeah. It didn't stop them. Yeah. It didn't. Yeah. We, we The guys, um, SF guys, would, uh, they, they had, the SF guys had a, uh, pair of binoculars that, that I believe came off a ship because mm -hmm. it was on a, a steel pedestal base. There were these big, yeah. these big giant binoculars. Wow! And and I can remember um, being out um, out at and looking out uh, to Korok Mountain with uh, with uh, one of the fellows with a, a guy by the name of Lou Desetta, mm -hmm. his SF and. He's saying, "Watch, watch." He said, "If they're gonna, if they're gonna roll out the artillery, you're gonna see the aiming stakes come out first. And so he's looking, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. look, 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 look." Yeah. And sure enough, you got these these big tall poles, these aim, yeah. <laughs> aiming stake. And he said, it, "They're gonna, they're gonna roll up the, the cannons, gonna start firing." And sure enough, yeah. You know, <laughs> months later, it's boom, boom. Yeah. Um. So yeah, we we tried. We had a quiet a quiet day uh, at Kason one particular day, and we got the bright idea that you know maybe we could maybe we could get rid of that. Yeah, I mean, how hard how hard could it be? You know. Yeah. Um, now, keep in mind, 
We've had fast movers that have trying to blow this thing up, try to send rockets down in there. Sure. But we thought, yeah, well, we're, we're going to make it there. You know? <laughs> so <laughs> we went out and um, we we saw where it was. We fired a bunch of rockets in there, sent in, you know, some mini guns and door guns and all that stuff in there. And everything was quiet. So we thought, hey, yeah. you know, maybe we did what nobody else <laughs> was able to do. Yeah. Well. It wasn't, we weren't back long, yeah. back in case I went all of a sudden, boom, yeah. boom. <laughs> they were retaliatory. Uh, wow. It, it, didn't, it didn't do anything. It didn't do anything. So Korok was, it was a problem the entire time. Yeah. It was a problem. And it was right on the border of Laos. Korok was in Laos, actually. Okay. But it's, it's such a short distance from Quezon. It's very narrow there, right? That, yeah, that, I mean, it, there's only about... 10 miles or so. Yeah. Just uh, not far. Now, was Quezon the same base that they held during, uh, what was it, at Bien Van Phu? Is that the no. S- no. Oh, it's different. Okay. No, but it was the same situation. Yeah, where there's sort of a valley and then there's a mountain yes. overlooking it and they're just. And just pounding down. Very similar. Yeah. It was very similar, except that Quezons actually sit on a plateau. Yeah. It was on a plateau, but it was surrounded. Uh, on almost four, almost four sides by mountains. Wow! On the, um, so it was almost a target. Oh, perfect target! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it was not a good place. I mean, it was a good place to have a base, I guess, because it was in the northern yeah. most areas of Vietnam. Yeah, uh, and in the western corner. Yeah, but you know, no, not good. Yeah, <laughs> and it was the whole area was torn up from uh, B fifty two strikes. Yeah. And our own artillery going off and whatnot. Yeah. Um, it, it was, I mean, it looked like. Nobody lived around there. Not close by, no, no. No. It was just really basically a war zone. It was a war zone. Yeah. It was a war zone. The, the, um, um, the Special Forces Camp Long Bay was just down the road, Quezon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Long Bay is a camp that got overrun during the Tet Offensive. Mm hmm. Um, that's where the North Vietnamese used tanks. Yeah. Uh, came in with tanks that, uh, that Saigon so-called intelligence said weren't in <laughs> existence and weren't in Vietnam. Right. Right. Um, they, they chastised several SF recon men when they reported that they saw tanks yeah. and followed tank tracks and stuff. Yeah. And they were basically chastised by these desk jockeys yeah. uh, for saying that's not what they saw. Yeah, yeah. Had farm equipment or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Well, same thing happened in the South. Like, they rolled into Saigon with tanks. Yeah. And everybody had been saying, no, there's no tanks. They don't have there's tanks. No tank. Yeah. No. Yeah, right. Yeah. I know a tank when I see one. Right. <laughs> Montagnard is a French term for mountain dwellers and an umbrella name for the Hmong, Rade, and Nung people and approximately 30 tribes that reside in the hills and mountains of southern Vietnam. The Montagnard were ill-treated by the French during the long colonial period and also distrustful of the South Vietnamese, though many converted to Christianity and openly opposed the communist regime of North Vietnam. 
Coming from a deep warrior culture, the Montagnard accepted U.S. Special Forces as warrior brothers and valiantly fought with them as scouts and advisors. While Montagnard is a general term, the Bru are a specific ethnic group living on the border of Laos and Vietnam and descendants of the great Khmer Empire, which flourished between the 9th and 13th centuries and encompassed present-day Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, and southern Vietnam. About 400 years ago, the Bru were pushed out of the best valley lands in northern Laos and forced southward and into the mountains and forests. They settled mostly along waterways and traditionally live in small houses that are built on stilts. According to a 2019 census, there are currently approximately 95,000 Brew people living in Vietnam. Let's talk about uh, Dao, because you make a friend. Yeah. And you're back at Fubai or Camp Eagle, and you're flying missions all the time, sort of providing support for these teams that are going in and going out. And you, you meet this guy, an indigenous guy, and he's from a particular group because there were not just Vietnamese, there were Montagnards, and there were these Brew people too. Yeah, the Brew, the Brew were a very unique mm-hmm. group of people. They're you know, small in stature. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very primitive in their appearance, their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, they were very, it, to me, it seemed that they were very much along the lines of, with their culture as our Native American yeah. culture. Yeah. They were very... Very tied to the land and that nature. Very tied to the land uh, and nature yeah. uh, was everything. Yeah. I mean, it was they were very spiritual in that way. Mm-hmm. I didn't meet Dao. He met me. Yeah. So he's just sort of seeing you come and go yeah. from the base. They're always watching everything, right? Always watching because their they're tribe members um, are working with the uh, SF recon people. Yeah. They're hired by them. And um, and Dow, he was an old man. Yeah, he, he was probably fifty years old, <laughs> right, or maybe thirty-five or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But he was an he was an elder. Yeah, uh, he, he was an old man. He looked like an old man. Yeah, you know? yeah. I what I have no idea what his age was. I, yeah. I wouldn't even guess. But to me, he was an old man. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. I mean, they they apparently. I mean, they would see us flying in and out. They knew what we did because their family members were working mm-hmm. with uh, with SF, with Recon. So they knew what we did. Yeah. And they knew how we protected their people. Yeah. You know? So anyway, one day when uh, we're at Mylock, so Harper and I were just kind of hanging out at the, uh, at the gunship waiting for uh, anything to happen. Yeah. And uh, it was quiet. And I see these three men walking up towards the flight line where we were. And uh, and they stopped um, a, a fair distance away, maybe, I don't know, 50 yards. I, I don't know. And, and they were just watching, yeah. just watching us, you know? Yeah. And then 
Um, then they squatted down and got into their relaxed squat position, as, as as you know, they can do for hours. Yeah, for hours. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, their, their butt yeah. almost touching the ground. Yep. Uh, just stay there for hours. Yeah. Yeah, try to do and, that. <laughs> you know, yeah, it hurts. It hurts. <laughs> but they, yeah. It hurt then. Okay. No, no, but they just they can just squat like that, and, yeah, and, and like yeah. they're like they're sitting, yeah, exactly, yeah. just like a relaxed sitting position, right? And um, <laughs> so, you know, the curiosity got to me, yeah. And I told uh, I told Harper, I said, "Hey, I said I'll, I'll be right back. I'm going to go see what's going on because I felt a little uncomfortable." Yeah. No, I didn't trust anybody. Of course not. I, I just I didn't trust anybody. Yeah. I didn't know who they were. I mean And they're just walking up on up to your helicopter. Yeah. That could be yeah, I mean, carrying just a grenade and, or whatever. Yeah. 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 Could, yeah. Well they didn't have too many places to hide <laughs> it, but, right. but they could Yeah, have. so we should describe how they were dressed. <laughs> well, just in loincloth. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> That's all you need. Yeah. 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 That was it. Yeah. Still could have carried a grenade, I guess, but sure. But I, I didn't know. Yeah. I just didn't know. Yeah. So I, I started walking over, and um, they they started getting, like, a little fidgety or, or what, and they stood up. Yeah. They, the three of them stood up. And um, so I, I went over and, and said hi and mm-hmm. smiled at them, and, um, and they started talking in brew, and I don't know what the heck they're saying. Yeah. And it became obvious that this this one um, was there was the leader of the three. Yeah, because uh, they kept looking at him and they jab or something, and then he says, "And I, I realized that you know I I felt they weren't a threat. Yeah, you know, yeah. they were just curious, and they were brew. I could I could tell that they they were brew, which were um, honorable beyond belief. Yeah. So I I started doing this yeah. and going chief. Yeah, chief. Yeah. And after a while, the gal, uh, he got the word out, sort of. You know, it was close. Yeah. And I was pointing at him, and and I I don't know to this day if Dow was his name, but it's the only name that would that would always come back to me was was Dow. Yeah. When I, you know, I got his name, it's a, he, he had the biggest smile <laughs> on his face. And he was so happy. And um, so we, you know, we just kind of parted. And I, I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't, yeah. I, I couldn't talk to him. Yeah. Didn't know what they wanted. Or I realized that they were just curious. Yeah. So the next day, or probably the next day, um, he came walking up. We land. Yeah. He came walking <laughs> with, his two, with his two sidekicks. And, um, and he, Squatted down, same place, and waited for me to come walking over. And I did, and I tried to get him to come back to the helicopter. And he said, no, 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 no. He, yeah. he was so afraid of it. Yeah. He was really afraid of it. Yeah. And I could see it in his eyes that, you know. Yeah. So we just kind of hang out, hung out there. And um, I would give him some cigarettes. And we would, I would always get those sundry pack cigarettes that were only, I think, five or so in a pack, a little flat pack. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd give them to him, and I would have to, he'd hand it back. I'd have to take one out before he would take any. Yeah. And there were only three of three of them. Yeah. So he would take, 
And then he'd hand it back to me. (laughs) And uh, so it, it was, it was fun. It was comical. And then I learned about his background, mm-hmm. about Dallas background. Mm-hmm. Um, he was definitely, he was like their, their local chieftain. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was, was of, of high uh, status, mm-hmm. very, very well-respected man. And in his earlier days was some phenomenal warrior. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, there was, a, they still did a lot of tribal wars, you know, mm-hmm. prior to this time. Mm-hmm. He had tattoos. He had different tattoos, and um, I was told that some of those tattoos are for kills. Mm. <laughs> but but such a such a nice man. I mean, uh, I I just felt a connection with him. Yeah. And so we would we would meet every time we would go up there. Um, he would come up. Mm. We'd land. Wow. And I found out later, years later, back in, in 2011, out at a store, mm-hmm. store mm-hmm. meeting, mm-hmm. I found out that they had a they had somewhat of a pool. The SF had somewhat of a pool going on on how long it would take from the time we landed till Dow would, <laughs> would, would I didn't know anything about this. But um, Vernon Ward told me about that. That yeah, it, w- it was hysterical because they knew when we land, it would be you know yeah so many minutes, and he'd be he'd be coming up. Wow. Um, Dow was was really something. Um, he made me. He presented me with a crossbow that he made, and I, I, I was just when he first gave it to me, I thought, I mean. That was the last thing from my mind, and he was giving it yeah. to me. I thought he was showing right, me. Right. I looked at it, and I mean, it's amazing. I mean, this is just just made with primitive tools. I saw the picture in your book. It's beautiful. It is. It's beautiful. So I, you know, I handed it back to him, and and his his eyes got kind of like a. I knew that something was wrong, and and he's he's going no 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 no, chief chief yeah. I wanted to give him some money yeah. He wouldn't take it. I finally got him to take. I I, I gave him. I think I gave him a like a ten a, a ten dollar MPC or something. Well, he didn't want to take it. The money was of little to no value to him. But but I, I I couldn't. I had nothing to give him. I didn't have any skill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I I got him to take to take the yeah. money. I'm thinking it's the next day or so. We're out. We were on a mission. We came back, and I see uh, at the other end of the air airfield, there was this little black market stand that was set up, and I never liked it. I didn't like it. I felt like the person that was running it was watching us. Yeah, it was a Vietnamese man. Yeah, I had mentioned it to um, Crawford, Dick Crawford, at the time, and he said, uh, "Don't worry about it." You know, I just didn't like this character. But anyway, so I see Dow there, and this guy is like waving his arms around. I can see like agitator or something. So I said to Harper, I said, you know, wait here. I said, I don't like the look of this. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. So I went over, and as I'm getting closer, I'm hearing this Vietnamese like yelling yeah. at Dow, and he's calling him all kinds of names. And 
I asked, I said, what's, what's going on? And he said, this, this stupid so-and-so won't pay me for the soda, for the Pepsi. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what, how much you are you asking for that? And he said, well, he has 10, he has 10 MPs, $10 MPC. That's what I want. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. But yeah, no. <laughs> no. So he and I start to have words. And he kept saying things, of, you know, Dow is stupid. Yeah. He's stupid. What do you care? Yeah. What do you care? He's going like an animal. Yeah. And then I, at some point, I lost my cool and um, I carried as a sidearm a 38, a Smith and Wesson 38. And I, I don't know if it was because of fatigue, mm-hmm. wound up too tight yeah. or what. But I, before I realized what happened, what was going on, I, I pulled off the, the 38 and I, I put it up against his head and was screaming at him. Harper came, came running over and he's, he's saying, Chief, calm down, calm down. And I, I, I don't know what I was saying, but I, I was so, I was like, you know, this uh, raging yeah. anger, you know, and during, during this scuffle and commotion, Dick Crawford, uh, SF medic, he come up, come charging up in a Jeep and he's saying, chief, chief, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't yeah. do it. And I'm, I'm saying something, this son of a B doesn't, he doesn't deserve to live. Cause he's ripping off this guy. And he said, Hey, he's the distance. And Crawford said, the thing that clicked, Crawford said, Chief, this isn't going to look good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This isn't going to play out well. This is not going to look good. So anyway, I I calmed down and um, I told this vendor that if I ever see him there again, I will kill him. Yeah. And and I I meant it. Yeah. And I, I, I took the soda gave it gave it to dow gave one to harper took one myself and i i don't know i put a couple of dollars on the on the table mm-hmm. and and that was it and the whole time dow was it was just as calm as could be and <laughs> i'm saying that's you know yeah. but um yeah he was he was a good guy yeah he was a good guy. yeah yeah he ended up uh gifting me a pipe wow and a little little tiny pipe. The bowl was, you know, just just small. Mm-hmm. Um, the stem of the pipe had brass rings on it. Wow! It had four brass rings that somehow he shaped to fit that stem. I don't know how the heck he did. Yeah. And um, I was told, and it would make sense that he took a piece of brass from um, like a seven six two. Yeah. And cut it. Yeah. And 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 hammer it to fit the shape. Wow! Um, and the the hole in the stem was so small; it was only about a sixteenth. And this and this the the stem was you know probably three inches long, two and a half. Three. Wow! What the heck? Yeah, he get that small of a hole through. <laughs> and I I was told that it was probably done with a piece of wire mm-hmm. that he kept heating up and then pushing and okay. heating up. And, and what was the pipe? made of wood or yeah oh yes made of wood of, of dark a dark hardwood yeah yeah wow um, wow and somewhere along the line unfortunately i lost the bowl mm-hmm. i i just have the stem left mm-hmm. 
but uh, he had gifted me that. He had gifted me a bracelet. But and, and a funny thing, we're talking about Dow, and I'm sure you uh, remember this in the book. One of the days when we got up there, I mean, I would always bring like some Pepsis or yeah. whatever, whatever I could, I had, or cigarettes and stuff, because I knew Dow was coming up, <laughs> and I wanted to give him some. I always did. Sure. And um, so <laughs> we landed, and um, here comes Dow and his two buddies. They come walking up. Uh, at this point in time, I was able to get him uh, to come to the helicopter, mm. and he wouldn't. I tried to get him to sit in it. Yeah, he wouldn't do that. So we would sit under the tail boom and just, you know, look at the clouds and points. <laughs> he would say something that I didn't understand. I'd say something he didn't understand. Yeah, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, shoot, I, I don't have anything. I didn't bring anything. And I'm checking in my pocket. I had a tropical bar. Yeah. I don't know if you know what those are. No, I don't. These tropical bars, I think they were made by Hershey. Okay. And they're small. They're about twice the width of a pack of gum mm-hmm. and about half the thickness. I mean, and they're chocolate. Yeah. But they're, they're, they're made where they don't melt. They don't, you know, they don't melt in the heat. Oh, wow. Especially for Vietnam type of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They were probably all chemical. Some glue in there or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so I'm reaching, and, and I realized I had a tropical bar yeah. in my pocket. Yeah. So I took it out and I unwrapped it and I handed it to Dow. And, and, Typical, you know, he, he pushes back and he's going chief, you know. Yeah. So I knew I had to take a bite yeah. first. Yeah. So he would not have it any other way. So I, t- I took a bite, broke off a piece of my mouth, handed it to Dow. He got a big smile with no teeth <laughs> you know, and these, these blood red gums that they get from the, the bean on the or beetle. The beetle knot. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and he takes it. And he puts his mouth, and he's gnawing on it, and gnawing on it, and gnawing on it, and he finally gets a, a piece off. Yeah, and it's all wet. And, yeah, yeah. And he hands it back to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, oh now no, what, <laughs> now what am I going to do? Yeah. I can't, I can't refuse it. I'm going to. How insulting would yeah. that be? Yeah, and this. I mean, I really loved this guy. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, what the heck? Yeah. What's the worst thing? So I put it I put it in my mouth and I'll tell you, he must have been thinking the same thing. I don't know. Yeah. But when I put it back in my mouth, his eyes lit up, his smile went from ear to wow, ear. Wow. He was he was so happy. It was such a gesture of trust. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, but he, he caught me off guard. When he, <laughs> <laughs> <but> he, yeah. <laughs> oh, so, gosh. Yeah, that was, that, was, that was my funniest experience with Dow. Working out of Camp Eagle, near the Sog base of Fubai and west of Da Nang, Roger's 101st Airborne Huey gunship Lose support for special forces SOG teams running secret missions into Laos. Established on the 24th of January 1964, all-volunteer MACV SOG 
most of whom were U.S. Army Special Forces Green Berets, carried out some of the most daring and dangerous special operations of the Vietnam War. They made high-altitude, low-opening parachute jumps behind enemy lines, routinely carried out reconnaissance missions along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, penetrated deep into Laos and Cambodia, recovered downed pilots, and attempted several POW rescues behind enemy lines known as bright light missions. Their campaign of harassment was so successful, it forced Hanoi to divert 40,000 troops, about four divisions, to rear security missions along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. In part two of this interview, Roger Lockshear will describe some of the more daring helicopter missions he went on in support of SOG teams, including the most amazing helicopter rescue story you've ever heard. Heroes Behind Headlines. Executive producer Ralph Fazzullo. Produced and engineered by Mike Dawson. Music provided by Extreme Music. For exclusive content, please join our Patreon group at patreon.com slash heroes behind headlines.